Hello there, and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is. It's a weekly podcast where we take a closer look at popular songs from the rock and roll era, and we look into some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Call. Good day, eh? Hey, don't forget to check out my website, howgooditis.com, where you can find some additional trivia, some follow-ups, and some other stuff that I found interesting. And by all means, go follow the show's Facebook page and tell the government what a cool podcast you're listening to. It's over at facebook.com slash out. How good it is, pod. Back in the day, it was pretty common for performers, especially in the folk genre, to write about current events and the effect that they were having on people. More often than not, they were socially relevant events, and they were referred to in kind of an oblique way. So when a song like, say, Ohio by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young comes along, which outlines a specific historic event, well, you sort of sit up and pay attention to it. And today, we're going to look at a song that recounted an historic event. Back in the 1950s, the Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, got themselves uh, invested in the iron and metals industry on a large-scale basis. And it was the first time that a, an American insurance company had done something like that. In 1957, they contracted with a shipbuilder to design and construct a freighter that would come within one foot of the maximum length allowed for passage through the St. Lawrence Seaway, which hadn't even been completed at that point. Now, by ore freighter standards, the interior of this ship was luxurious. Her furnishings included deep pile carpeting. Well, this was 1957. There were tiled bathrooms. There were drapes over the portholes. And there were leather swivel chairs in the guest lounge. There were two guest staterooms for passengers. Air conditioning extended to the crew quarters, and those featured more amenities than usual. There was a large galley and a fully stocked pantry, which supplied meals for two different dining rooms. The pilot house was outfitted with state-of-the-art nautical equipment and a beautiful map room. And Northwestern chose to name this ship after the president and chairman of their company, who had a family history of working on and around boats all over the Great Lakes. That man's name was Edmund Fitzgerald. Now, the christening ceremony, which took place on June 7, 1958, had lots of oddball problems going on. When Mr. Fitzgerald's wife Elizabeth tried to smash the champagne bottle over the bow, it took her three tries to get the bottle to break. Then the shipyard crew had trouble releasing the keel blocks that would allow the ship to enter the water, and it took them a half hour to free them. The ship was launched sideways, which is not unusual. Sometimes they go backwards into the water, and sometimes they go sideways. This was a sideways launch. But there were so many people in attendance that many of them wound up close enough to the rails that they got very wet by the splash. In addition, the ship itself bumped into the pier before it finally righted itself. And this is one of those times where the internet can be pretty amazing because there is, in fact, footage of the Edmund Fitzgerald's launch on YouTube. I'll have it linked on the website for you. You don't see the people actively getting wet because of the camera angle, but you do see a lot of debris in the water because of the hit that the pier took and a bunch of shipyard workers running around shortly after the launch. 
Now, for such a rough start, the Edmund Fitzgerald was a genuine workhorse, uh, logged hundreds of round trips on the Great Lakes and over a million miles traveled between 1958 and 1975. In 1969, the ship received a citation for operating for eight years without incurring a time-off worker injury. And there were a couple of mishaps between then and 1974, but none of them were considered serious or especially unusual. But then came November 9th, 1975. <laughs> The ship left uh, Superior, Wisconsin in the mid-afternoon. It was headed for a steel mill near Detroit with a load of taconite ore pellets. Around 5 p.m., the Fitzgerald met up with another ore freighter named the Arthur M. Anderson, which was bound for Gary, Indiana. Around this time, the National Weather Service's forecast was for a storm that would pass just south of Lake Superior the next day. But the weather turned, and it turned fast. By that night, gale warnings were being issued for the entire lake, and the two ships changed course trying to get some shelter from the benefit of being a little bit closer to shore. By the next afternoon, the two ships were still right there in the middle of the storm and it had begun to snow besides. The Fitzgerald reported to the Anderson that they were taking on water. They had lost two vent covers and a fence railing. About an hour later, they reported they had lost both of their radar systems and they asked the Anderson to help keep track of them. A little while after that, Anderson notified Fitzgerald of a third ship in the area and asked how they were doing. The captain said, we're holding our own. That was their last communication. Within minutes, the ship had sunk without issuing a distress call. And aside from some debris, including lifeboats and rafts, none of the crew were found. 29 men aged 20 to 63 simply vanished in the storm. Now the ship was found a few days later by a plane flying overhead and a couple of days after that, a Navy survey that used uh, side scan sonar found two large objects lying close to one another on the lake floor. Between 1976 and 1994, several survey dives took place to gather information, and one last series of dives took place in 1995 to salvage the bell from atop the pilot house and replace it with a replica that had the crew members' names engraved on it as a marker for their watery grave. The original bell was restored and is now on display at the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum, which is not far from where the Fitzgerald went down. Now, the original story of the ship's demise made it into a few local newspapers and was even the subject of a brief article in the November 24, 1975 issue of Newsweek magazine titled The Cruelest Month. And if not for Gordon Lightfoot, that would have been pretty much the end of it. But Lightfoot thought that the story wasn't getting enough attention. And what really irritated him, uh, at least according to an interview he did with NPR, was that the name of the ship was so frequently misspelled in the print stories. So he went out and he bought all the old newspapers and magazines he could find that had a story about the tragedy, and he arranged them in chronological order. And he began to write a song whose melody was based on this old Irish dirge called I Wish I Was Back Home in Derry. We sailed out to sea, out from the sweet town of Derry. For Australia bound, if we didn't all drown, the marks of our feathers we carried. In the rusty iron chains we cried for our wains Our good women we left in sorrow As the mainsails unfurled the curses we heard And the English and thoughts of tomorrow
The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. Now, of course, it wasn't quite that easy. You see, Lightfoot really had gotten the story in his head. And according to an interview he did on Canadian radio, he really agonized over the details of the lyrics, wanting to get every detail just right. Having said that, if you look at the Newsweek article, you'll see he lifted some of the lines directly from the article. But the problem was that it was giving him writer's block because he wanted to get all the details straight. So finally, his producer and friend, uh, Lenny Warrenker, told him to play to his artistic strengths and just tell a story. And as a result, the song does have a few inaccuracies in it. So, for instance, you'll remember I said a couple of minutes ago that the ship was headed for Detroit, while Lightfoot sings it was headed for Cleveland. Also, of course, he's telling us things that the captain and the cook said when nobody really knows what was said that night. The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald was recorded in December of 1975 at Eastern Sound Studios in Toronto, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. So the recording took place only about a month after the sinking, and it was probably the first digital multi-track recording using a prototype 32-track recorder developed by the 3M company. So the record was released in August of 1976 and it topped the Canadian charts on November 20th, almost exactly a year after the disaster. In the United States, it peaked at number two on the Billboard chart. It got blocked out by Rod Stewart's Tonight's the Night, and that makes it Gordon Lightfoot's uh, second most successful single behind Sundown. Overseas, it was a minor hit at best, uh, barely cracking the top 40 in the UK. Now, Lightfoot has made a couple of changes to the song in response to different things. For instance, after one performance, uh, a parishioner at the Mariner's Church of Detroit told him that the church is not, in fact, musty. So Lightfoot now sings the line as, in a rustic old hall. And similarly, as information came out from those survey dives, it became clear that the ship broke up on the surface and then sank very suddenly. When he learned about this, he changed this line. See, when you say something like the main hatchway caved in, you're kind of suggesting that there was a crew-based error, that somebody didn't dog down the hatch, and that's why it caved in. And, and the fact is, he didn't want to reflect that, especially since the new information suggested it really wasn't a crew error. So when he performs it now, at least since 2010, he's changed the line, and now it sounds like this. At I know it's a little bit tough to, to hear, but what he what he sings now is, At 7 p.m. it grew dark. It was then. He said, fellas, it's been good to know you. Lightfoot has said that he does not intend to change the original copyrighted lyrics, though. He's going to leave them just the way they are. And that's it for this edition of How Good It Is. Hey, if you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at howgooditispod. You can also check out and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. And finally, of course, you can check out the show's website and certainly by all means leave comments there. That's at howgooditis.com and that's where I throw in a few extra bits for you. Next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when the killer takes the stage. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you then.